Last week, we started looking at Peter's first letter, and we noticed it was a letter written from the city of Rome by Peter, and it was written to Christians who were living not just in one city, but living across a very wide area. They were scattered across what we know as Turkey today. So this letter would have been passed around lots of little groups of Christians, And Peter has written this to encourage them. He knows they're all suffering in one way or another because of their faith in Jesus. Or if they haven't suffered yet, he knows they will before long. And Peter wants to help them by reminding them who they are. That's what he's trying to do in this letter. Reminding them that they are God's chosen people. They are special to God. And we saw last week that is true of us as well. When we come and put our trust in Jesus, we become part of something special. We have a special status that we didn't have before. And last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And we saw there some of what it means to be God's chosen people. It means, for one thing, we have a glorious future ahead of us. Peter called it an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And Peter told us right now, today, we have reason to rejoice because of what's ahead of us. And not only because of what's ahead of us, but because God is with us now already. He doesn't leave us to go through difficulties all by ourselves. That's what we heard last time. And as we carry on listening to Peter this morning, he says to us, think before you live. You've probably heard the expression, look before you leap. Meaning, before you commit yourself to something, make sure you know what you're committing to. Look before you leap. Well, here, Peter is saying, before you do anything, think about who you are. Think before you live. Now, this is not something that always comes naturally to us. I think we tend to get up in the morning, and depending on our personality, we either jump straight into the day, or we drag ourselves slowly into the day. And we can go through that routine for weeks and months and years without ever really stopping to think, who am I? How should I be living? What's my life for? What am I supposed to be doing with it? We can very easily go for years just on autopilot, living without thinking. But Peter says to us, that's not the way to live. As God's chosen people, it's vital that you think before you live. It's the only way to get your life right. And that is Peter's message to us this morning in verses 13 to 25 of chapter 1. We noticed last week, this is not a message Peter thought up himself. It's a message given to Peter by Jesus Christ. 
Peter is speaking to us as an apostle or a messenger of Jesus. If you haven't already turned to 1 Peter, you'll find it on page 1217 or in the larger print Bibles, 1887. Chapter 1, reading from verses 13 to 25. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is God's word. And the idea of think before you live comes right at the beginning of verse 13. The NIV says, with minds that are alert. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, as you know, fashion changes over time. It changes pretty quickly most of the time. And at the time Peter is writing, People did not wear t-shirts and jeans. They didn't even wear suits and ties. They wore robes. And if you were about to do something active, wearing those kind of clothes, anything more than a leisurely stroll, then you had to prepare for action. You had to pull up the long bit at the bottom of your robes, and you had to tie it around your waist, your loins. And then you were ready to run or to climb or whatever it was you were going to do. That's what it meant to gird up your loins. If you didn't do that, you'd trip and fall pretty quickly. And here Peter says, never mind running or climbing. When it comes to living, you have to prepare for that strenuous challenge. 
And you have to prepare for it by doing something similar, not to your robes, but to your minds. You have to gird them up so you don't trip and fall in the way you live. So how do we do that? Well, Peter says in verse 13, we are to be fully sober. Not long after we moved into our current house, we were woken up one morning about five o'clock, maybe a bit earlier than that, by someone who was banging on the door of the house. So I went downstairs and through the glass in the front door, I could see someone standing outside our house, swaying, gently rocking back and forth. I asked him what he wanted, and he just stood there, swaying. Eventually, after a long time, he seemed to remember what it was he wanted. Did I have a light? As it happened, I didn't have a light, and I really wanted to go back to bed. But it took a long time after that for my visitor finally to understand what I was trying to tell him. Eventually, he decided to sit down on our doorstep to think about it all for a while. And when I came back down later, he'd wandered off down the street, still swaying. The man was drunk. And because he was drunk, his mind was in a haze. He couldn't quite seem to focus. He couldn't pin down his thoughts and get them in order. That's a pretty pathetic state to be in. And here Peter says, as Christians, we are to be the exact opposite of that. We are to be fully sober. Now I'm sure in Peter's mind that would include not getting drunk with alcohol. But Peter is not mainly thinking about alcohol here at all. He's saying, don't go through your life in a haze where you never really quite focus on who you are as God's chosen people. Instead of going through life like that, get your head in the right place. In America, people would say, get your game face on. In Northern Ireland, we'd say, wise up. And the point is, get your thinking clear so you know who you are and where you're going. And then you'll get it right when it comes to living your life. Don't live your life like the drunk man on my doorstep, never really succeeding in getting your focus clear. And then in the rest of verses 13 down to verse 21, Peter makes just one big point for us. As God's chosen people, live your new life, not your old one. And Peter in these verses tells us three things about our new life. In the second half of verse 13, he says, you are heading for a meeting with Jesus. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Last week, we heard about this in more detail. We have a glorious inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. When Jesus returns to this earth, he will bring that inheritance to us. And our inheritance will turn out to be heaven itself. Heaven will come to earth 
and heaven will be ours to enjoy forever. And here Peter says, set your hope on that. Live with that day in your mind's eye, on the horizon, just like a finish line ahead of you. Whatever other hopes you might have for the future, isn't this the most significant thing about your future? Isn't this the event that ought to guide all of your decisions today? Picture yourself on a path that leads to the day of Jesus' return. The day he comes bringing your reward with him. Maybe before you just meandered your way through life, never really thinking about the future. Or maybe you did have a future in mind, but it was far less glorious than this. Maybe it was limited to getting a good wage or having a good retirement. But now, Peter says to us, as God's chosen people, this is the future you're to have in mind. Make your decisions and set your priorities in light of the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Don't pour all your time and energy into stuff you'll be ashamed of on that day. Back in the days before we knew Jesus, it made sense to live for an easy life here and now or to stockpile money here and now, or to bend the rules to get ahead here and now, or to plan revenge on our enemies here and now. But since we've met Jesus, we have something much, much bigger to live for. Now, as Christians, we enjoy leisure time. We're thankful for our income. We do our very best in our studies and in our work. But those aren't the things we're living for. We're living for Jesus' return. And so we want to spend our lives on things we'll be glad about when he returns. Then in verses 14 to 17, Peter tells us something else about our new life. Not only are we heading for a meeting with Jesus, he says... You are children of a holy God. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word almost belongs to God himself. The Bible tells us he is good and strong and pure and just and faithful. It tells us he hates sin. It tells us he loves righteousness. And the word holy describes that whole package, the complete package. It really describes God's entire character. Not just one aspect of his character, but all of it together. But in the Bible, the word holy isn't only used for God. 
It's also used for things that are set apart for God, things that are devoted to him. So in the Old Testament, the temple and even the items in the temple were called holy because they were set apart for God. The temple was not available for private parties. It was for God. It was holy. The altar in the temple, well, that wasn't available for sacrifices to Baal or Molech or any other false god. It was only for sacrifices to the Lord, the one true God. And God's people, they weren't to serve other gods. Neither were they to serve themselves. They were to live for the Lord alone. They were to be holy to the Lord. And in that context, God spoke the words that are quoted here in verse 16, be holy because I am holy. Those words come from the book of Leviticus and they're repeated quite a few times in that book. And here, Peter takes those words spoken to God's people in the Old Testament and he says, they apply just as much to us. Now we've seen that holiness applies first and foremost to God himself. But we are not God and we never will be. So what does this command mean for us? Well, through faith in Jesus, we're forgiven. We've been made pure in God's sight. We have been set apart for God. And so our lives are to begin to be like the God we belong to. Notice in verse 15, this is not just for Sundays. We're called to be holy in all we do. That means at home, at school, at work, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. We're not to take any holidays from pursuing holiness. In everything, we're to be choosing purity over impurity, good over evil, faithfulness over unfaithfulness, honesty over deceit. Righteousness over unrighteousness. In every situation, in every decision, we are to be seeking to be like our God. Our life is to reflect his character. And that is not natural for us. At least it didn't used to be. In verse 14, Peter speaks about the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And he's not just talking about lust there. He means all those impulses that used to drive us before we came to Jesus. Selfishness, greed, pride, getting our own back on people, serving ourselves. Back in those days, God meant nothing to us. Or at the very most, he meant next to nothing to us. Maybe we tipped our hat to him occasionally by saying the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we went to a carol service here and there. But we didn't love him. We didn't see his beauty. We were ignorant of his worthiness. But that was then. Now... We've been born again. 
into a new family. God is no longer like a distant being far, far away from us. We relate to him now as children to a father. And because God is a good father, because he's the best father, the more we get to know him, the more we want to be like him. Whatever our life was like before, this is our new life. And this is why Peter is calling us to think before we live. If you and I don't take time regularly to remember our new situation, we'll end up going back on autopilot, the old autopilot, living selfishly, just like we used to, just like nothing has changed. Instead of living as men and women who belong to a holy God. Live your new life, not your old one. And then just in case any of us thought this was optional for us, that maybe we could take or leave this call to be holy, notice how Peter turns up the heat a little bit in verse 17. He says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter reminds us, our loving Father in heaven is also the judge of every human being. And we mustn't make the mistake of thinking he cares about other people's sin, but not about our sin. In the Old Testament, we hear about two men, Eli and Samuel. They were both priests, and their job was to call Israel to be faithful to the Lord. But it seems that Eli and Samuel forgot to call their own sons to do the same. We're told Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. And Samuel's sons turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now I'm very aware very aware that parents cannot make their children turn out in a certain way. We can work to train them and influence them, but in the end, they are responsible for how they live. But in the case of both Eli and Samuel, the implication is, if we read those stories, that both of those two dads had one rule for Israel and another for their own kids. They were firm with Israel's sin, but they were lenient to the point of being completely indulgent when it came to their own children's sin. And we've probably all come across similar situations ourselves, haven't we? Either in or outside the church. A double standard. But here, Peter's point is that our Father in heaven is not like that. He loves us. He loves us with an unfailing, everlasting love. But he does not feel indulgent towards our sin. He's still the judge of all the earth. 
And if he hates the sin of our non-Christian neighbors, that means he hates our sin just as much. You and I must never imagine that our God smiles a wistful little smile when we disobey him and when we dishonor his name. Yes, there is forgiveness available to us. Yes, his arms are open every time we repent of our sin and run home to him. But he does command us, be holy because I am holy. Pursuing holiness is not optional for us. It is part of what it means to be the child of a holy God. So instead of presuming that God will forgive us because that's his job, as Christians, we ought to live with a healthy fear of dishonoring him. He calls us not to conform to the evil desires we had before we came to know his love and holiness and worthiness. In the past, we were ignorant. It was natural for us to live in ways that dishonored him. But that's not who we are anymore. Now we have a new status. We're foreigners to that old way of life. We're not to go back to it. Live your new life, not your old one. In verses 18 to 21, Peter mentions something else about our new life. You were redeemed by God's sacrifice. Verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. In verse 18, Peter again looks back, and he calls our old life the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors. That's pretty blunt. He says, your ancestors really gave you nothing at all. And that statement makes it pretty likely Peter is writing mainly to people who come from a Gentile background. In other words, they are not Israelites. The New Testament says the Israelites had massive privileges. They had God's law. They had his promises for the future. Now, certainly none of that saved them from their sin. They still needed Jesus as much as anyone. But it's hard to believe Peter would describe the life of the ancient Israelites as empty. He quotes from the Old Testament regularly in this letter. But that is not the main point he's making here. The point is, these Gentile people were stuck in an empty, futile life. They didn't know what their life was for. They were not living with a glorious inheritance in front of them. They did not have God as their loving, faithful father. 
And so whatever else they might have been living for, whatever they might have been pursuing, it had no lasting value. It was what the book of Ecclesiastes calls chasing after the wind. That is what they did with their lives. They chased after empty things. That's what we were like before we came to know Jesus. And in fact, Peter says it was worse than that. They were enslaved to that way of life. They were doomed to live empty lives. How do we know they were enslaved? Because Peter talks about the price that was paid to redeem them. The word redeem comes from the world of human slavery. That's the context in which the word was first used. If you wanted to set a slave free, you had to pay a price. A certain amount of silver or gold had to be handed over. And Peter says to us, when you were slaves to emptiness and futility, there was a price to be paid in your case as well. But it wasn't paid in silver or gold. Your freedom cost the precious blood of Christ. Peter is talking about Jesus dying on the cross. That was the price to free you and me from our old, empty way of life. That was the price to deliver us from chasing after the wind. When Peter calls Jesus a lamb without blemish or defect, he wants us to make a connection to all those lambs that were brought as sacrifices in the Old Testament. Thousands of them, hundreds of thousands. Who were those lambs being offered to? To God. That's why they had to be free from blemish or defect. They were to be the very best lambs because God was holy. Only the very best sacrifice would do. And when someone brought a lamb and handed it over, they were acknowledging their own sin. They were agreeing their sin made them guilty before God. And they were asking God to accept the death of the Lamb in place of their own death. So now in verses 18 and 19, Peter is bringing two ideas together for us. Slavery and guilt. Our old way of life wasn't just empty, it was a life of defying God. It was sinful. And so it made us not just slaves, but guilty slaves. Slaves who deserved his judgment. Our slavery and our guilt together were taking us to death and hell. But God took action. He worked to deliver us from both an empty present and a terrible future. The price of that double deliverance was not something we could ever pay by ourselves. God himself paid the price. And notice, he didn't do it as an afterthought. He didn't do it lightly. He didn't do it as an off-the-cuff reaction to something that happened here on earth. Verse 20 says, 
before we were born, before the world was even created, the plan was already there. The perfect Son of God would come to earth and pay the price. He would give his life as the ultimate, perfect sacrificial lamb. And he would do it to buy us from a life of emptiness that was headed for judgment for a life of significance that is headed for heaven. Look how Peter underlines that in verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So you could have the opportunity to live your new life, not your old one. One writer says, one of the biggest threats we face as Christians is the threat of our past. Think about your past. Maybe you don't want to think about it. The ways you and I used to live and the ways we used to think are so familiar to us. We can call them up in a second. Old patterns of sin, old attitudes we had, old empty priorities that we lived for. Those old routines are ready and waiting for us to just slide on back into them. That's why we've got to make a regular habit of thinking before we live. Remembering what God has done to deliver us from that old way of life. Remembering who we are now. Children of a holy God. Redeemed to live a new life. So in the first part of this passage, Peter has given us the command to be holy in all we do. Now in verses 22 to 25, he gives us just one specific instruction about what that will look like. He says to us, love each other forever because your new life is forever. The command comes first in verse 22 and the explanation comes afterwards. He says in verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. So here's what Peter seems to be saying in this verse. You have been set apart for a new life. You've been purified. That happened when you believed the good news about Jesus. You obeyed the truth. And I can see, Peter says, that has produced in you a genuine love for each other. Your love isn't fake. It's sincere. You mean it. And now, Peter says, the challenge is to keep on loving one another. The NIV says, love one another deeply. A better translation would be, love one another without ceasing. The word translated deeply in the NIV is actually speaking about persevering. Peter is calling us to persevering love. He's calling us to continue loving one another even when it gets difficult. 
even when it's hard and really honestly we'd rather just give up now he's talking specifically here about love between Christian brothers and sisters in the church the church family and we certainly are to love other people too but this is about not giving up in our love for God's people all those who belong to Jesus and we are probably tempted to do that sometimes we're not always going to have lovely warm feelings for one another sometimes we will feel so close to just walking away but we are to persevere in showing love to one another that is the command then in verses 23 to 25 Peter gives a reason for it we are to love each other forever because our new life is forever verse 23 for you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God for all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word that was preached to you maybe in our old life we gave up on people but now we have new life in us and that new life is imperishable it is not going to end it was planted in us by God's word we heard the message of who Jesus is what he's done on our behalf and as we received that word God made us alive now we are part of something that lasts forever and that is the opposite of every other kind of life everything else is as impermanent and fleeting as the grass last summer we saw just how quickly grass can wither the English countryside went from green to brown after just a few weeks of heat outside our house at the moment we have a sorry looking hanging basket that shows everyone who comes to our house just how quickly flowers fall and human life goes so quickly as well human glory also everything that seems so impressive right now it won't be there in a few years in the week I heard about a, a well-known actor who apparently gets up at half past two every morning so he can work out now he's a few years older than me and he's always been known more for his physique I think than for his acting skills now I'm all in favor of exercise but doesn't that sound a bit like desperation to you doesn't it sound like desperately trying to hold on to physical abilities that actually are beginning to ebb away I'm sure when he was 25 he didn't have to get up at half past two in the morning to maintain his physique 
but now it's getting harder and harder. The glory is fading away from it. Human love can dry up quickly too. Very often when it gets hard for people, when it gets inconvenient, they just walk out. Do you see how this fits the thread of the whole passage? Our old life, we've heard, was full of evil desires. It was an empty way of life. And now Peter says it was a fading life too. The good things in it were so short-lived. And even when we tried to desperately hold on to them, we knew they were slipping away from us. But in contrast to that, our new life is imperishable. It's unfading. And so, here's the point, our love for one another must be imperishable and unfading too. God's chosen people are not like the British and Irish Lions. They're a team that gets together for a couple of months to play a few rugby matches and then they all go their separate ways again. As God's people, we're not like that. We're in this together and we're in it forever. We are eternally related to one another. These people you're sitting beside are never going to stop being your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are eternally related to one another and we're to show that as we persevere in love for one another. The message we want to share with the world is a message of God's enduring love, isn't it? And we will either give credence to that message as the world sees our enduring love for one another or we'll give the world reason to reject our message they see that our love for one another is fickle and short-lived. Let's think before we live. If we try to live on autopilot just according to our instincts, the chances are it's going to end up being our old instincts. We'll slide back into old ways of reacting, old ambitions and priorities, old, selfish, bitter ways of relating to one another. All the ways that came naturally to us when we lived in ignorance and emptiness. But now we have a new life to live. We're children of a holy God. We're redeemed by God's sacrifice. We're heading for a meeting with Jesus. So let's show that new life in all that we do. And let's begin with our love for one another. This is a passage and this is a message that calls for a response from all of us. And our last song gives us an opportunity to do that, to commit to what we have been called to to live our lives every day beneath the cross of Jesus.